Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Here this morning, you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand. We want to get uh, the text in your hand. You're going to need it. We're just working through this Gospel week after week. And we are finally into the fifth chapter. Um, And today's historical account is actually quite radical. This is quite an interesting and provocative (coughs) story here that we come across in the fifth chapter. It's one of those days that I'm sure the disciples never forgot. You know those days, there's certain events that happen in your life that you don't forget those. You tell your children about those. As you grow older, you still remember them. This is one of those days for these 12 young men, 12 young men here in the fifth chapter. I don't believe they ever forgot it. And something important to remember as we're working through the gospel is that this gospel account written by Mark is coming from the eyewitness account of Peter. We all know Peter, St. Peter, Apostle Peter. Uh, He is alongside Mark, who's essentially the scribe, and he is retelling Mark these different accounts of what happened when they spent those three years with Jesus. And this is one of those days that would have been vivid in their memory. Uh, because of what took place on this particular day. And so Peter is recounting to Mark, who's writing down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what took place on this day. Okay, let's waste no time. Let's get into it. We're just going to go verse by verse. We really need to get down into the weeds of the story, and then kind of the main message is going to start to float to the top as we get into it. So you're going to need that Bible. Verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Let's stop there. So immediately the problem presents itself. Right. Look at the verse. Verse one, it says they came to the other side of the sea. Remember from last week, they had just survived that violent storm crossing the Sea of Galilee. The way the Sea of Galilee is set up in geography is there's steep, steep mountains, um, really more like hills uh, on all sides of the lake. And so it's susceptible to sudden, sudden storms as cool air rushes down into the basin of the lake. And so they're crossing at nighttime, which is never probably a good idea, right? Maybe they had a torch to see a little bit, but all of a sudden a storm comes Upon them, and they they survived that because of the power of Jesus. You remember back in the last chapter. What you find here, though, is a parallel in the story. There's a lot of parallels from the sea they just crossed in that passage and this passage. And here's one of them Jesus just calmed a violent storm at sea, and now he meets a man with a violent storm inside him. Look at the description. The description of this tormented man is very raw here in these verses. So it says he meets a man in the tombs, in a graveyard with unclean spirit. Then verse 3 goes on to describe. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Pause there. 
So this is no everyday occurrence. This isn't meeting a new stranger in the coffee shop. This is violent. This is raw. This is in your face. And the description really fits more of a ferocious animal that needs to be chained up than a human being. We just read the description. He's bound with chains. Look at what it says. It says no one could bind him anymore. And then it says again, no one had the strength to subdue him. Mark's account here implies that the demonic powers are intent on prohibiting Jesus from entering this region. Just think about it, right? First, the demonic nature of the storm on the lake that nearly capsizes the boat and drowns the disciples. And then now a demon-possessed man, powerful enough to break chains, who's subdued like a wild animal, hurls himself at Jesus and the disciples. The disciples must have thought to themselves, this is what I would have thought, could this day get any worse? Like, what are we doing here? Jesus, first you have us drive the boat at night, then we almost died because we couldn't swim that well back in the recreational swimming wasn't a thing in that society. We, we nearly died, and now we're over here in what was a Gentile region. It's just Jews didn't go to this side of the lake. And as soon as we get there, this wild animal of a man tormented by unclean spirit is trying to hurt us. What are we doing here? In the Old Testament scriptures, there was a category of things that was deemed unclean. Look back at verse 2. It says, There met him out of the tombs a man with, there's the word, an unclean spirit. So here's how it works. Jesus meets a man with an unclean spirit living among unclean tombs. In the Old Testament law, you weren't supposed to be around graveyards or touch uh, the body of a dead person that, was, that would deem you unclean. And there was a whole ritual you had to go through over several periods of days to come back to the community. So an unclean spirit living among unclean tombs, surrounded by people employed in unclean occupations. They raised pigs. You're going to see that later in the story. That was unclean in the Jewish tradition. All in unclean territory, Gentile territory, run by the Romans. That's the situation they're in. Pick up in verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. I mean, if I'm Andrew and James or Bartholomew or pick one up. What's the plan? Why did we come to this side of the lake? The man that hurls himself at Jesus is about as unclean as you can get. And the reality is they had really no business being there. Yet Jesus goes there. (coughs) Pick up in verse 8. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. A legion was a Roman military unit of around 6,000 troops. This doesn't mean that there were 6,000 demons, but it does mean, as it says, that 
we are many. This man is beyond human help. He is in a deeply tormented state. Verse 10, story goes on. And he begged him earnestly. So this is now the, the, the demonic voice inside him. Not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. And they begged Jesus saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. The implication of that request seems to be, and when you read other parts of scripture, that evil spirits, demonic powers are territorial beings. And they seek to retain control over certain regions. The New Testament talks about certain principalities and powers and domains over particular Regions, And so that explains the strange request to send them to the pigs. If they couldn't stay in this man and be in this region wielding their spiritual power of darkness, then at least we can stay in the region through these pigs is what they're asking. The story goes on. Let's see what happens. Verse 13. So Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea, into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. What a moment, right? Jesus is negotiating with his demonic voice, and if you've had read any of the historical accounts we've done around the demonic encounter, it's a, it's a pretty terrifying voice. I remember I've mentioned this before, The Atlantic, a, a secular magazine, did an article just a, a couple of years back. It was a cover story about how demonic uh, possession is up in the United States and the request for priests and pastors to do exorcism is on the rise. Even secular news is accounting for the power of the demonic, the, the, the evil um, nature around us. And so the disciples are there. They're wondering, what is going on? Legion, that's 6,000. Can we leave? Jesus is negotiating. He negotiates and says, fine, enter the pigs. And something happens physically to the man. And this legion of demons rushes into 2,000 pigs up on the cliff, enters them. They probably squeal like crazy. Then they rush off a cliff. I mean, just get that in your mind. 2,000 pigs. It's somewhat common, running off a cliff, down and diving, one after another, 2,000, how long did that take? I don't know, into the ocean and drowning and dead. Pick back up in verse, where are we? 14. So it says, the herdsmen fled, they went to the city, they told them all that had happened. An important part of this story it's not always obvious, is the economic side of it. A herd of 2,000 pigs back in that time was a fortune. That was a huge investment. And all of them now are gone. Money gone, washed into the sea. Let's see how the town reacts. Pick up in verse 15. It says, And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and to the pigs and they began to beg Jesus 
to depart from their region. Let's stop there. This is where the story draws again on some parallels with the story that came before it with the storm at sea. Both stories end the same way. Both stories end with fear. Look back at verse 41 of chapter 4, the last verse in chapter 4. The story right before this. It says, and they, speaking of the disciples, were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's how that story ends. Look at verse 15 of chapter 5. They came to Jesus, saw the demon-possessed man. They're putting the pieces together. The one who had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. Further, like the disciples, the townspeople witness an awesome miracle. But it does not necessarily lead to faith. In fact, it leads to them being afraid. And in today's story, the townspeople, they resent the intrusion of Jesus into their region and they beg him to leave. What do we need to do, Jesus, to get you out of here? Do we need to give you money? Do we need to give you a safe passage? Just please leave our town alone. Go back to the other side where you belong with your Jewish people. Just, just leave. Is how it describes it. Often, this is the response of the human heart to Jesus. Most people, if they were asked, would probably say they would, they would like to see a manifestation of God, a sign of God, a miracle of God. But when God manifests himself in Jesus, many, if not most people, ask him to leave. Think of what Jesus says on his own account in John, beginning of John chapter 1, verse 11. This isn't Jesus speaking, actually, this is John the Apostle. He says, Jesus came to his own, verse 11, and his own people did not receive him. Look back at the story. Just as the demons begged Jesus not to send them out of the area, that's verse 10, and to send them into the pigs, that's verse 12. So now the townspeople beg Jesus to leave. Verse 18. Why would they want to get rid of him? Didn't he just solve a problem for them? Why are they begging him, insisting on him to leave? It's a problem that they had hidden far away by the tombs. This man, this tormented man. The reason is fear. Verse 15, it's fear, but fear of what? Greater financial loss, more economic disruption in their town. (coughs) They cared more for the pigs than for the welfare of this tormented man. And that's, it's possible that it was economic reasons, but more likely Jesus is seen as dangerous, a dangerous disruption to their peaceful lives. Jesus is seen as breaking the status quo. Jesus is seen as threatening business as usual. You can just imagine what they thought and possibly said to them. Jesus, we had everything under control. We already sorted out this problem. We put him where he belongs, chained up by the tombs. We got to run our society. We need to be safe. 
We brought him food. He was comfortable. We got businesses to run, families to care for. I mean, what else are you going to change around here, Jesus? Go back on that side of the sea. See, Jesus has already spoken to this kind of response to him in the parable of the sower that we read. We read a couple weeks ago that he had just shared the day before. Remember the account. Chapter 4, he gets to the, to the beach side of the Sea of Galilee, and he sits on the boat because the crowds were so many, and he teaches all day, right? And one of the things he teaches is his parable. And then at nighttime is when they cross the sea, almost die, and then the next morning is when they meet this tormented man. But remember what he says in the parable of the story. He gives four different responses that can happen to him. And the third one, I think, describes exactly what's happening to this town. Pick up back in chapter 4. Verse 18, it says, and others, a third example, are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. You see, whether or not the townspeople were concerned about greater financial loss or a disruption in their peaceful lives, they, they allow such distractions to totally blind them. They're so stuck in their own ways that they miss Jesus. They're so clung to keeping the peace in their little lives that they miss the inbreaking of the kingdom of God through the most important man that's ever existed. I was studying this this week and I was blown away by the story but was wondering how does it connect to my life in 2022? And I started to see what's happening at the end of the story and I began to wonder how addicted am I to my own little superficial peace that I often am blind to the reality of the kingdom, to those little things that happen every day by the hand of God, or those little opportunities to witness and to do something for the kingdom of God. How am I clung to the, to the status quo, to not being disturbed or disrupted, that I miss the inbreaking of the kingdom? You see, the kingdom brings change. That's what it does. But some of us are so addicted to superficial peace that we can block the kingdom without even knowing it. We can put our heads down and go about our nine to five and just try and get through our day. And we become like these castles protecting our little comfort and convenience and peace. I mean, we have a whole society built around convenience. And in many ways, I like that. Probably too much. But often when we live with our head down, we miss, we become blind to the little moments of God trying to break in to our everyday. Where do you work? Where do you go to school? What's it like there? What's the nine to five? Do you start early at work? Do you start early? Do you start later? Do you go morning workout person, afternoon? I don't know. What's your day like? How often do we put it in a certain gear 
whether you're retired or you work, whether you're in school, we put our life in a certain gear and we get so fixated on managing our little welfare that we're blind. You know what helps with this? Having kids. Am I right? People say marriage will change you. And it it does to an extent, but not my kids. Kids pull you out of your own little world, do they not? I mean, they rip you out of it. And now it's not just about managing my little universe, but it's about managing and serving and helping these needy little humans all around me. I think there's a parallel here the response of the town that they're stuck in that often we as Christians can be stuck in because the town missed it this tormented man he didn't miss it he was changed the story goes on in verse 18 let's see how it concludes it says as he was getting into the boat Jesus the man who had been possessed with demons begged him there's that word again that Jesus might be with him. <coughs> Verse 19. And, he, and Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's the region of towns, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone Marveled. Jesus sees these townspeople blocking him from entering the Decapolis. It's a Roman territory of ten cities. This man wants to go, and he says, "No, I need you to stay here as a witness to what I've done for you, to the mercy that I've shown to you." And he does that, and says, "People marveled." Let's really think about this man. He's as good as dead. He's living in tombs. He's beyond human help. He's just rotting away there like a chained beast day after day after day. And nothing was going to change that. No one could help him. They had to put him out far from the society. Till the day Jesus said, let's go over there to that side of the lake. That's where we're going to make camp. The day he met Jesus changed everything in his life. That's our story, isn't it? For you, it might have been a progressive meeting of the living and real Jesus Christ. For others, it might have been more acute and dramatic. But I can tell you, and you can tell me, the day I really met the living Jesus, I remember it was an evening, high school, end of high school. The day I really met the living Christ, everything, about the trajectory of my life radically changed. There's a quote from a scholar named uh, Mark Strauss. We can bring that to the screen. He talks about this demoniac man. He says this, his task now is simply to proclaim to others what Jesus had done for him. That is to bear testimony to the grace of God and the transforming power of his kingdom. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian witness. It is not about learning the right words or developing the most persuasive method. It is bearing simple testimony to 
to what God has done for you. As John Newton so simply and profoundly wrote. You know that song, Amazing Grace. If we go to the next slide. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. That is the most simple testimony of what the Lord has done in his life. Do you know about John Newton? He was a captain of a slave ship. He ran the uh, African slave trade in, in, in the UK, in Britain. And he lived a debaucherous life. He even went blind by the end of, the end of his life. But somewhere in his story, he met the real and living Jesus. And he wrote these words. This is what came out of him, that the Lord had done the mercy that he had shown on him, a life of enslaving people, of moving human trafficking and ruining whole families. And he talks about the grace of God that came to him, that saved a wretch like me. This is how it works. It's a simple testimony. See, we're a community that can sing this song together. The day that Jesus met you changed everything. We can gather week after week and sing of what it says in verse 19. What the Lord has done for you. But not only that. We want our life to sing with a witness. Early in the church, the church fathers and mothers, they talked about the gospel as a tune. It was a certain song that your life would sing. And you could get out of tune with the song. And often the church has. But they liken it to a song of witness that your life sings. Our everyday life in the world. That it would ring with the tune of the gospel. That people would hear from us in word and deed what the Lord has done for you. The way that works is that we would be so deeply identified with the fact that I once was blind, but now I can see. When you become so identified with what you once were and how Christ changed you, the volume and the pitch and the tempo of the song become far more vibrant and far more loud. When someone asks you, you know, who are you? Tell me about yourself. What's your story? And what's at the center of your story, when you so deeply identify, and God has been good to me, let me tell you of the mercy that he's had on me. Right? And you can say that in a thousand different ways. But when that is the core of your story, of your reflection on your life on planet Earth, it sings a song. It draws people. It's a tune. It's intriguing. You want to hear it. You want to listen to it. When you hear just a bland story of, yeah, well, I grew up over here, and I came to school here, and this, that, and the other, that song doesn't sing. But when the living God has intersected in my life, I have a story to tell, whether it be dramatic or progressive, that sings. Together, as a faith family, 
We want to be so identified with the radical change Jesus brought into our lives now and forevermore that our life together sings a song in this community. The question to ask today is, <clears throat> what song does your life sing? If people were to spend time with you, you know those people. And it's genuine. I'm not telling you to be spiritually superficial or spiritual fakery. That's disgusting. We don't want any more of that. But when you genuinely identify with all that the Lord has done for you, and you sit with those people, and they talk about just honestly, man, I'm a, I'm a wayward sinner. I mean, God's had so much mercy on me. And they tell you authentically what God has meant to them. And how God has changed them. And how God has slowly become their everything. And it sings like a song. And it's true. And it's genuine. It's endearing. And so the question we have to ask is, what song does your life sing? Does it ring with the mercy that God has had on you? In this Advent season... So much of what we're doing is we're celebrating the goodness and the mercy and the generosity of God. The greatest gift that God has ever given his world is his son. The greatest gift that has ever intersected with your life is his son. And what we do in Advent is we celebrate that story, that one grand story of the gospel, but then the millions of stories that come down like lines from it of Sarah and of Brooks and of all these different people, international folks. If I could say their name, I would, but I would, I would botch it. There's just millions of stories coming down from that one story of Christ, of lives that have been radically changed, not just now, but for their existence into eternity. We live in the greatest story that's ever been told. And Advent is about coming back to that, deepening our roots in that, growing our gratitude in that, and letting the song of that story and ours ring out more and more in our lives. It's so easy to miss the Christ of Christmas. It's so easy to get distracted in the status quo and business as usual. There's one prayer to pray in Advent season. It's God, open my eyes to your goodness in my life. Christmas is about gratitude. It's about receiving the gift. When you're handed a gift on Christmas, what's your reaction? Gratitude. And so Advent is about receiving the gift of Christ and giving back gratitude to God. My prayer is that we do that well this season.